Come on in and find our seats and open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. And let's pray. Father, how grateful we are, especially at this time of year as we are celebrating the birth of the Lord Jesus coming to take on our flesh, take on humanity, so that he would be able to be an adequate sacrifice, that he would be able to atone for our sin and to, to suffer your wrath on our behalf, that he would purchase our redemption, and that more than that, he would purchase life, that you would give us your spirit, that we would be able to know you, that we would be able to understand your word so that we could be able to obey you and ultimately to worship you. And Lord, how we look forward to the day when we're going to be with you and we're going to be like the Lord Jesus fully because we'll see him as he is. How we long for that day. Help us to see you this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, um, in chapter 2, verse 6, we encountered the first command in this book, the first imperative. And it was, since you have received Christ, since you have learned of him, since you have been taught him, so walk in him, that your manner of life would be consistent with what God says, with what God requires. And there were four ways in which that was done, three of which are passive, in the passive voice, meaning that they are done to us. We've been firmly rooted. We're now being built up in him, and we are established in our faith. All of those things are things that have been done for us by God. And then the fourth is our response to that. We are overflowing with gratitude. Now, for any reason, at some point in your Christian life, if you have a hard time coming up with a reason to be grateful, just come to this verse, that'll get you going, and you shouldn't have any difficulties after that. Now, we talked last week about how gratitude promotes uh, humility, how gratitude promotes joy. Someone came up after class and said, you know what, actually, there's another one too. Gratitude promotes worship. When we realize what the things that God has done for us and is doing for us and continues to do for us, it just creates in our heart, doesn't it? The response of giving back to God praise and gratitude for who he is and, and how he deals with us. So this morning, the next section that we're going to look at, there is a second command, and the rest of the section is about that command. And so let's read the next section here, starting at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, 
and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The command here is at the very beginning. In fact, it's the very opening words of verse 8. See to it. Now, in law enforcement, they have something called a bolo. Be on the lookout. That's this word. Watch out. Beware. Radar's on. Eyes are peeled. Ears are tuned. Everything is, you're, you're watching for this because it is a danger. There is someone, there is an enemy of your soul who is seeking to take you captive. And that word captive is used to describe someone who is basically a prisoner of war. They've been kidnapped. They have been taken as booty in some type of a military victory. And so the idea here is that someone is trying to take you away from the path on which you should be. And what is interesting here is how that kidnapping is done. It is not done by force. It's done through deception. And it's done under the, uh, under the umbrella of philosophy. So see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. Now what is philosophy? Don't look at your notes. What's philosophy? Pardon me? Okay, it is actually a compound word, and it's a transliteration. Again, it comes from philo, love, and sophia, wisdom. So love of wisdom. So let me ask you, is philosophy in and of itself a bad thing? No, why not? Okay, Proverbs. We love God's wisdom. We should love God's wisdom, right? That's what we should be going after. You guys are doing so much better this week. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I ask a question and people are popping all over the place. This is great. When does philosophy become a problem? When it's worldly. When you're no longer pursuing God's wisdom. Now, it's interesting here because uh, it, the way it's phrased here, through philosophy and empty deception, makes it look like these are separate. They're not. There's an article with philosophy. There's no article with empty deception. So empty deception is actually talking about philosophy. 
the philosophy that's being offered is a hollow man. It has no substance. It's like um, they used to sell some kind of a chocolate thing. I can remember it when I was a kid. And you would bite into it, and it was empty. It was hollow. And, pardon me? A chocolate bunny? Could have been a chocolate bunny. I don't actually remember. I just remember biting into it and going, oh, what's the deal? The thing is, when you talk about this kind of philosophy, that ought to be your reaction to it. What's the deal? You look inside, and, oh, there's nothing there. It's empty. It's hollow. It's got nothing to offer. Promises a lot, delivers nothing. And so this idea here is that this philosophy, it's empty. Why? Because it's according to tradition. It's according to the rudiments. And so when you see this word elementary particles, this is like ABCs, right? ABCs are necessary. You've got to have the alphabet in order to form words, right? In order to have speech, you've got to have the alphabet over here. The alphabet would be the rudimentary principles for spelling. And so that's the idea here. We, and not according to Christ. So we have, these people have pushed Christ aside, and they are substituting something else. And that something else can be very wide. It can be very broad. So for instance, in Colossae, they're being hit with the Judaizers. And the Judaizers would say, it's, Christ is great. Oh yes, absolutely have Christ. But you also have to have Moses. You have to have the law. So you've got to be circumcised. You have to keep the law in addition to Christ. And there were others. The mystics would come in and say, you need to have this, this special knowledge. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a secret society here, and we've got the real corner on truth. Yet, God is not in their truth. They're, soft, they're offering something else. What would be, so what would be some things that would get offered today as far as worldly wisdom? What would be offered today? Secularism or humanism? Okay, can you give me an example, Matt? All you need is inside you. There you go. Okay, what else? Believe in yourself. Love yourself. That's the greatest love of all, right? Yeah, right. Boy, what could go wrong there? What else? Got to love yourself before you can love others. Somebody should have told Jesus that. What else? Ends justify the means. Ooh. Follow your heart. <laughs> if it feels good, okay, now if we go back to the original there, if it feels good, do it, right? How can, uh oh, what was the song? Hang on a second, I'm having a flashback. Uh, Debbie, Debbie Boone, that's the one. I can't remember now. Yeah, you light up my life. What was that? How can something be so wrong if it feels so right? How about psychology? 
give away biblical counseling and substitute it with blame shifting. It's really not your fault. You know, it was your mother. It was your dad. It was, you know, someone else has, has brought this about. Okay, so now take, substitute something there for psychology. What else is big right now in our culture? Being a victim. Okay, here's all these things that you can substitute for God's word. And if you're not careful, if you're not mindful and watchful, you can get sucked away. How many churches have fallen into critical race theory? How many churches fell into the emerging church? How many churches have fallen into the health and wealth and prosperity gospel? There's all kinds of things out there that, again, will take you and they're going to nudge you off. And so here you have, you have these things that are being offered in place of according to Christ. And Paul, it's interesting here, right now he's not going to get into the details of that. In fact, let's just stop here for a second. Does it bother anybody that Paul doesn't actually name the people or the exact things that are causing grief in Colossae? Does it bother you? Why would be a very good reason why that error is not specifically identified? And I'll give you a hint. Why does Paul not specifically identify his thorn in the flesh? Exactly. Some people could have a different thorn. And again, and what would happen, what would be the temptation for us? Well, that was Paul's issue, but that really doesn't reach to me in mine. That's not true. It puts the focus on, it puts the focus on the thorn and not the grace that God says is going to be sufficient for him, right? And so again, it doesn't matter what the thorn is. That's the principle that is behind that. And the same thing is happening in Colossae. If, if, if Paul tied it down to where it was a specific doctrine, then what would be the temptation? Well, that deals with that issue. But over here, no, 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 we've got something unique. No, we don't. No, we don't. Same song, different verse. And so, again, Solomon, right? There's nothing new under the sun. In fact, when we get to the end, if we have time, I want to tie back to the beginning because we've actually got bookends here in this section. Rather than according to Christ. And so in verse 9, Paul's going to jump right back on here. Here is where you need to have your thinking. Here's where it is. For in him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is one of the most incredible verses you're ever going to read. The deity, the fullness of the divine, of the, of the divine essence, the divine nature 
permanently and continuously because it's a present active indicative. This is all the time. That nature lives, it is at home in Christ. All of God, that's why Jesus was able to say to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If God had a face, this is the one he would have. It's Jesus's. And so the idea here is that Christ has everything of the divine nature. He is in no way inferior to God. He and the Father have the exact same essence, the exact same nature. And here's where Paul's going to go with that. And because you are in him, you've been filled as well. That's why the, the, the translation here is a little bit unfortunate. In verse 10, and in him you have been made complete. Kenneth Wiest has a, uh, he's basing his off of Marvin Vincent's uh, word study with this idea of fullness. And Wiest has got this, translates it this way. And you are in him, Christ, having been completely filled full with the present result that you are in a state of fullness in him who is the head of every principality and authority. Because the believer is in Christ, Christ has been made full, therefore we have been made full because we are in him. So the, per the idea of that is this. If we're full, if we've been made full in Christ, what else do we need? What's anybody else got to offer? It, nothing is right. And in fact, what, yeah, they do actually have something to offer. It's called subtraction. Right? They can't put anything in. The only thing they can do is take out, take away. Uh, Warren Wiersbe had a, had a, had a quote. Uh, Spiritual growth is not by addition, but by nutrition. Do you want to grow in your life? Here's your diet. When you try to substitute something else instead of this, you're starving. Because whatever else you put in there cannot help you spiritually. No can do. It's not possible. And so the idea here, how is it that we're made full? The idea is that because we are in Christ, we are given all of God's communicable attributes. Now, okay, now some of you, I am so happy. Some of you are nodding up and down because you know exactly what we're talking about here. I'm get from a couple of you, I'm kind of getting a... So, here's what that means. Going back to our systematic theology, right? There, God has two general types of characteristics, of attributes. There are those that are non-communicable. They cannot be shared because they belong to God and God alone. God alone is omnipotent. God alone is omnipresent. God alone is, all, is, is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. God alone is before, is 
before all time and after all time. He's from everlasting to everlasting. All of those types of characteristics are unique to God and God alone. There are a number of characteristics, though, that God does share. His holiness, his righteousness, love, compassion, mercy, all of those things that are true about God, he shares with us. And in fact, we are commanded to be those things, right? So when you look and you say, wait a minute, God shares his holiness? Yes, he does. And in fact, what are we commanded? Be holy as I am holy, exactly. We're to be righteous. We are to love, why? Because he first loved us. There's all of these things. Is God ever not at peace? No, he's not. If God had feathers, they would never be ruffled. All of those kinds of things, we have and we have them completely. We may not enjoy them fully now, but they are absolutely ours, and there is coming a day when we will enjoy them fully. Can God love us any more than he does right now at this moment? No, he can't. And so, those communicable attributes of God is what it is that we have been filled full. You don't have to go somewhere else. I never read the book, so I might get in trouble here. My love cup is already full. Okay? I don't have to go someplace else to get my love cup filled. And so again, it's the idea here of trying to substitute, and again, I'm going to bang a hammer, we're going to run into this word again here, I'll bang it because it's something again that's good for us to keep, frankly, in the forefront of our mind. Remember that those who are trying to deceive are always trying to make Christ no longer preeminent, but reduce him to being prominent. He's one among several. Jesus is not a first among equals. There is no equal for him. None. Many years ago, I ran into an acronym, BELOW, B-E-L-O-W. There is none beside him. E, there is none else. L, there's none like him. O, there's none other. W, there's none with. Christ is unique. He stands alone and there is no way anybody who is trying to take him and bring him down to where others can be you know on the same platform that's heresy that is danger will robinson theology and that is something that we ought to as soon as we hear that the radars ought to go boop there's a problem and here's a teacher to avoid we don't deal with this guy B-E-L-O-W, none beside, none else, none like, 
none other, none with. And he is head over all rule and authority. He is the head. This idea of the head, he is the preeminent one. He is superior to any and all. Now, this idea of rule and authority, those are angelic terms. So remember, when in earlier, back in chapter 1, he's talking about how he created all things visible and invisible. All of the kingdoms, domains, rules, authority, all of those were created by Christ. Therefore, he is what? He's superior to all of them. Now, that's good angels, holy angels, and demons. Satan's in that group, too. He is superior. He is the head. He is the preeminent one over all. And we'll come back to that again in a bit. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now he's going to bring up two issues here, one of which they are being directly confronted with, and that is circumcision. Now we'll remember that circumcision involved removing a part of the male anatomy, a part of the, the male's body. And that was, okay, what was circumcision? It's a sign. It's a sign of what? A sign of the covenant between God and Abraham, right? And his progeny. And the idea behind circumcision, it's a physical rite that demonstrates that one is consecrated to God, right? I'm supposed to belong to God. This is a physical sign of that. So what does the physical sign actually accomplish? I have on my finger here a piece of jewelry. It's a ring. Jeff Potter had the same ring, same exact ring. Couldn't believe it. What's this ring? Is it, is it physical? You bet. It's on my finger. It never leaves my finger. That's why I, if, I don't, if I didn't wear my ring, you'd know I had one because it's got a groove in my finger now. Is that all it is? And what else is it? It's a sign. It's a promise. It relates to another reality. It relates to a reality. That's what circumcision is supposed to be. It is supposed to be something that signifies a spiritual reality. And this does go back all the way to the Old Testament. So you'll find, in fact, I listed the, um, the references for you. If you go to Deuteronomy 10.16, Deuteronomy 36, 30 verse 6, Jeremiah 4.4, Jeremiah 9.26, Ezekiel 44.7. You'll also run into it in the New Testament in Romans 2.29 and Acts 7.51 where it talks about being circumcised of heart. Now physically, at least I hope no one tries to physically circumcise a heart. What's the idea of being circumcised of heart? 
sorry. Commitment. The idea of being circumcised of heart is that I, because the heart, again, is the seat of the mind and the seat of the will. And so that is, I'm circ- by being circumcised, I have been separated from sin. I've been separated from the body of sin. That's the idea. And so what Paul gets at here is that the idea of having something snipped off of the male reproductive organ has nothing to do with whether or not that person is circumcised of heart. That's the circumcision that's made without hands. And so you've got this little table here in your notes. Uh, For the Jews, there was an external surgery. It was part of the body, done with hands, and no spiritual help in conquering sin. That was made plenty evident by them, right? There were 603,550, I believe, was the number of men of military age when they came out of Egypt. Out of that 603,500 some odd, how many walked into the promised land? Two. Two. Joshua and Caleb. Why? Because when they were among the 12 spies who went into the land and they came out, they were the only two who said, yeah, they're big. Big people there. The bigger they are, the harder they'll fall. Because God has promised that that land is going to be ours. And so we should trust him and we should go in and we should follow him and we should obey him and do it with a smile on our face. But the other 10... No, 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 they're huge, they're going to kill us, you know, da, 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 and God said, and, and the rest of the people sided with the ten. So, that's why they got to wander in the wilderness for another 38 some odd years, until every last one of them were dead. In Hebrews chapter 3, those are the ones with whom God was not well pleased because they hardened their hearts, and they did it consistently. And so again, they did not have circumcised hearts. They chose to think according to man's thinking, according to elementary principles of the world. And so again, there's, there's plenty of examples as to how people can have a physical sign but not have, not experience the reality, the spiritual reality. The idea here in verse 11, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, this idea of removal is putting off, stripping off. It is a total breaking away from. Now, does that remind you of a couple of verses in the New Testament where it's talking about putting off? All right, are you falling asleep again? 
Come on. That one's not that hard. Okay, exactly. Putting off the old self, being renewed in your thinking, and then putting on the new man, right? This idea, and again, we're going to run into it with the picture of baptism. It's the idea of I am now dead to a former way of living. I'm dead to that. How responsive are dead people? They're not, right? They're not. And so the idea here, you got something on your mind? Yeah, Ephesians 4.22. And we're going to run into it here in Colossians, the putting off. And so, again, it is, that's the idea of the circumcision without hands, the circumcision of the heart. That happens at conversion. That happens at the moment of redemption. We are now dead to this former way of living. Peter would say, you know, you've had sufficient time for fulfilling these lusts over here. You've had enough time now. It's time to move on over here to living in righteousness. And so that's the idea here of removal. You can, you're never going to accomplish that with a scalpel. Not going to happen. That's a work of God in your heart. Does that make sense? So the idea here for the Judaizers to come in and say, no, 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 you require physical circumcision. What would Paul's argument be against circumcision? If you put your trust in circumcision, in the physical surgery, then what else have you got to bring in with it? The whole law, all of it. And yet, we're not subject to the whole law. We're not subject to that. We're going to get into that here in a bit too. Well, we'll get to that next week. So, he deals with circumcision. And then in the next verse... He deals with baptism. Now, <laughs> there's another baptism class. Is that starting today after church? Yeah, so there's another baptism class. We just baptized a whole bunch of people. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen a baptismal here that was, what was it, seven, eight people? And there's more that want to get in. And so what is baptism? We're going to have a mini baptism class in the next three minutes and 30 seconds. What's baptism? Emery. An exterior sign of an interior change. Very good. Cool. The idea is baptism is a picture. Baptism is a picture of what? A spiritual reality, right? It is a public declaration that I am identifying with Jesus Christ. And the actual act of baptism also pictures something as well, doesn't it? That's why we dunk people. Because that's the only way you're going to get the full effect of what it pictures. So, somebody's out here in the hot tub and they kneel down and they go down under the water. What does that signify? They're dead 
and they've been buried. And after a minute or two, you bring them up. What does that signify? Life. We've been raised to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 4. So the idea here, again, baptism is a picture. And the cool thing is, as you look at this, there are a bunch of co-words that are used here. We have been buried with him. We have been raised with him. We have been made alive with him, right? Those words, if you look in Greek, they all start with S-U-N, soon, with. And so these are things that because they are true for Christ, then they are also true for us. What is our hope for a resurrection after, after death? Christ's resurrection, right? He walked out of the tomb. And so these, these, these pictures are there because that is the spiritual reality. So when I am, I'm already... What's my state before I come to Christ? I'm dead. I'm dead in my sin. I had no hope. I was outside the commonwealth. I had no hope. And I had utterly no ability to save myself. Neither did you. You were dead in trespasses and sins. And you he has made alive who were dead. Right? All of him. And again, because what can dead people accomplish? Unless it's decomposing, nothing. Right? And so, there's no one has the ability to rescue themselves. That is, that is utterly impossible. I'm sorry? Passive continuous. <laughs> I, you know, I'm glad I wasn't drinking something just then. I probably would have had a Mount Vesuvius moment. We've been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. Now, this idea of the working of God, that's the word from which we get our word, energy. It's the power of God. It's, the, it's his, you know, his, his power in order to accomplish things. And if you go over to Romans 10, 9, and 10, then you'll find that uh, if we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then what's, what's the result of that? We'll be saved. So, here's Paul's point. If we have the, if, if Christ is the fullness of God in bodily form, and we have, because we are in him, we have been fully filled, then what else do we need? Why do you need to be seeking something from anybody else? From anybody else? 
especially, again, when all it's going to do is harm us. So he keeps going. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, now here again, that's where he's making the connection here, uncircumcision of the heart, dead in transgressions and sins, boom, synonymous. That's the same thing. He made you alive together with him. We have been made alive. We have been given his life. By the way, Jesus' life is what? It is eternal. So when we die, is that the end of the story? When the day comes that you guys come to a service to look at me and say, my, don't he look natural. You know, that's another metaphor I'm probably going to have to get rid of because nobody does open casket memorials anymore. I looked at plenty of people and looked down here and no, they don't look natural. They look pasty. I can guarantee you that my grandfather never wore makeup a day in his life, all right? But he was wearing it when I saw him that last time. When that day comes, is it over? No. To quote somebody else, I'll be more alive than I've ever been. We've been made alive together with him. We were dead in our transgressions. And what has he done with those transgressions? He's forgiven them. All of those things that damned me to eternal agony have been forgiven. Why were they forgiven? They've been paid for, exactly. Boy, I tell you what, if you're ever struggling with the gratitude thing again, just ponder that one. And again, not swept under the rug. Not a suspended sentence. You remember the suspended sentence, right? What it is, legally? You've been convicted. You've been sentenced, but that sentence is held in abeyance if you mind yourself, if you don't do those criminal things again. If you reoffend, this sentence now comes into effect, and you go, you know, whatever it was. Usually it's prison. So again, the idea here is Jesus was the guilt offering. You'll find that in Isaiah 53.10. The idea of the guilt offering was what? We've talked about this before. What was unique in the offerings that the Jews had in the Old Testament? What was unique about the guilt offering? We've talked about it before. I hope somebody remembers. The guilt offering was the only offering that involved restitution. The one who had been sinned against was made right. And that's going to carry out here because we had something. There was written evidence 
He's forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Now, this is going back to a first century practice. When one became in debt to another, the, the debtor would write out a certificate that outlined what was owed. It was in his own hand. So what would that preclude? What would that prevent? If, if I wrote it out, I'm never going to be able to plead ignorance, right? I wrote it. And the idea here is that when we sin, we are offending God. We are incurring a debt to God. And God keeps track. This is the certificate. This is the thing that's written out. And for some, you can imagine how many reams there must be to record all of these. And for those who turn in repentance and faith, that volume is taken and it's nailed to the cross. There's an X on it. This one's been satisfied. This one's been paid. That's why you and I will never stand before God and before the books, the books of the deeds. We're never going to be judged that way because all of ours, those have been covered. They have been atoned. They've been paid for. Was that hostile to us, those, those volumes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was the evidence that would put us in hell. And it's been atoned, it's been covered. The comment here is that it's the completeness of it. And in fact, just take that idea of the completeness and compare that to everything else that's in here. Christ is completely filled with the divine essence. And because he is completely filled, if we are in him, what are we? Completely filled. We were completely dead. Now we've been made completely alive. Our sins, which were many, have been completely atoned. They've been completely paid for. And so again, this idea, that is our heritage in Christ. Why would you go looking for something else? What could you get that would be better than that? Well, I'm holding out for a better deal. Someone's going to have a better sale. No, no. This idea of canceled, in the first century, they would use this papyrus. 
this parchment to write on. Ink didn't have acid in it, so it would not etch into the papyrus. You could literally wipe it and reuse the parchment. That's the idea of canceled. It's been wiped. It's been, so uh, we would talk about swiping, right? So when you would talk about wiping uh, a hard drive or something with a magnet to make everything go away, that's the idea here. It has been blotted out. It has been wiped. And it is gone, never to reappear. All sin, past, future, doesn't matter. And then he ends with this statement. Verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now the he here is God, the Father. The work has been accomplished through Christ. So Christ is the final him when it talks about through him. Now, this idea of disarming is, again, it's, it's literally to divest of weapons. It was also another word that was used for stripping, for undressing, for disrobing. Now, the picture here is the Roman general who has conquered in a military battle. And because he has conquered, he comes back into Rome and there's a parade. And he's at the head of the parade. And behind him are who? There's a bunch of people walking behind him. And they are not having a good time. They're being humiliated because they're being paraded. These are some of my spoils of war. These are my booty. These are my captives. And he's making a public display of them. That word public display was used of Joseph since we're at Christmas time. Joseph, when he finds out that Mary is pregnant, did not wish to make a public spectacle of her. He didn't want to shame her. The whole idea of that, of that procession with the Roman general is shame. Shame for being defeated and not dying. Christ has triumphed over them. Now, here's where we want to tie. We want to make a little tie here. The idea of being disrobed, the idea of being made a public spectacle, the idea of being a, a, a prey, a, a prize of war, does that sound familiar? Go back to verse 8. Now, the rulers and the authorities here, this again is in the angelic domain. Christ, at the cross, defeated Satan. He defeated the demons. They are defeated. And he has made a public display of them. He has triumphed. God has done to Satan what Satan wants to do to you. That's the idea of him trying to take you captive. He wants to humiliate you. He wants to shame you. In fact, by shaming you, who else does he shame? He shames God, right? Hey, 
got some of your folks over here. Why? We've got a few minutes left. Why is it that Satan's primary tool is deception? You need to understand this. This will help you in day-to-day -day life. Why does Satan depend on deception? Pardon me? He's the father of lies. Okay, he wants willing victims. That's the side door into this. Okay? Truth is not on his side. Okay, so he has to use deception. Gunner? Okay, plays a role in counterfeit religions. Okay, so Satan's not all-powerful and omniscient and uh, omnipotent. You're getting close. You're getting close. Why does Satan have to use deception? He turned away from the truth. Why do, okay, so he has nothing else. Why does he not have anything else? Okay, he's been defeated. Man, you're hitting all around it. Jonathan. He's only got what's given to him. Flesh that out. Okay. Why does Satan have to use deception? Because he can't beat you head on. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He can't force you to do anything. He cannot force you. So he's got to sucker you. Now listen, on a day-to-day -day basis, I can't be made to sin. That means I have to choose to. Or I have to be suckered. He can't take his head on. And that's not because of us, right? I would be no match. It's because of the God who lives in me, the God who lives in you. That's why we need to be mindful of those who would try to tell us something that is not true to separate us from the truth that is in Christ. Does that make sense? Flip Wilson and, you know, the, his, his character, I think, was Geraldine. The devil made me do it. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. See, that's the beauty again. When we're dead in trespasses and sins, I can't please God. It's impossible for me to please God. I'm a slave to sin. I'm dead to righteousness. Alive to sin, dead to righteousness. But at the moment of conversion, what happens? I'm made alive to God. I'm made alive to righteousness. I'm set free. Romans 6, sin shall not have dominion over you. 
I cannot be made to sin. I'm dead to it. The only reason that it happens is because I choose to. Or I get deceived. So, to the first, if I choose to sin, that's on me. I don't have an excuse. I can't blame somebody else. Again, I have the power of God in me. I've been freed from the power of sin. It's dead. That's the whole idea. Again, remember the idea of being circumcised of heart? That part of what's been cut away is the whole body of sin. The only reason it has any life in me is because I choose to give it to him. So, we need to be obedient, right? When we know what's right, we need to do what's right. But we also need to be mindful of what we choose to believe is true. And the best way to do that, you stick with the book. You study it, you know it, so that you understand it, that you can obey it, that you can then teach others to do it. It's when we get away from this that we open ourselves up to all kinds of trouble. Questions? We just spent an hour covering seven verses. I guess it would be eight. And frankly, we could have spent a whole lot more time to flesh some other things out. That's the economy. That's one of the beauties of God's word. It's economical. It's concise. And yet, it is all-encompassing when it comes to things pertaining to life and godliness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how grateful we are that because we are in you, then we also receive the fullness of all of the, the things that can be shared from your nature, we have. We have no excuses. We have no excuses for choosing to sin. We have no excuses for ignorance. Your word, you've given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Your word may not tell us how to change the oil in our car, but it tells us the attitude that we ought to have while we're doing it, especially when things aren't going right. We have no excuses for sin. And so, Father, help us to, to own our choices. That we would be able to, when we are confronted, when, when it's brought to our mind, that we would be able to repent quickly that we would be able to be restored and reconciled quickly. That we would bring no shame to your name. Oh God, that we would live in such a way that people would see our lives in the midst of, of, of affliction, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of conflict, and they would be mindful that it's you who is at work in us. That we would bring glory to you.